Let us turn to the Bible passage this morning, taken from 1 Samuel 15, verse 1 to 3 and 7 to 15. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when the way led them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put them to death, men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of Amalekites, alive, and all his people. He totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves, the lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything else was despised that week they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. This is the word of the Lord. Two announcements, and then we just want to have a. Can, is that working? Cool. Two announcements, and then um, just uh, want to pray for someone, and then we'll get into this passage. Um, I always love being able to just give a couple of announcements. All of the things that you read in the bulletin are important, every single one, but just to highlight two of them. Number one, next week, Sunday, in the afternoon, we're having a prayer time. We meet together down in the. Um, in that room down the back there, which I forgot what it's called now, the conference room. Um, to come together and to pray for those members of our family that don't yet understand what Christ has done. So if you have people in your family who don't yet know the Lord and you've got a burden for them, then please join with us at 3pm next Sunday afternoon. It just gives an opportunity to meet together and to pray because God listens to us when we pray. So please be thinking about that and if you're free next Sunday afternoon, then we'd love to see you and if you're not free, make yourself free. And the other thing is that there are studies still and some people are interested in being in connect groups. If you're not yet in a group during the week where you have an opportunity to talk and to share with other believers, we have two groups, one that's hoping to start on a Tuesday evening one that's hoping to start on a Friday evening. So if you're interested in either of those evenings in joining a group, then please write that down on the yellow card and give it to me or pop it in the boxes that are on the side of, of, of the auditorium. And then the person to pray for, in this morning service, Joel Rogers 
received a phone call. She's off at Logan Hospital now. Her son, um, Josh, is in intensive care there on life support. And we're not exactly sure why, but um, we will just spend a little bit of time now praying and asking God to bless her and the family. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're a God who knows us and you care for us. Father, we would like to bring Joelle before you this morning and uh, particularly as she's going through an enormous burden at the moment. We're not quite sure why Josh is suddenly in hospital and and, uh, on life support, but we know that it must be breaking Joelle's heart. And Father, we ask that you might give the doctors and the nurses wisdom and that you might bring healing to Josh. We also pray that you might be a comfort to Joelle at this time. Father, we pray that as her family surrounds her, that they too might bring her and give her comfort. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know what verse you teach your children first or what saying you eventually get. The most good Christian families probably hit John 3.16 or something like that, that you remember from growing up. Everyone here should probably be able to say that. Is that correct? Let's do it together. One, two, three, four. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten. Old-fashioned, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Yeah, we all know it. Some people didn't say anything catch up with someone afterwards and learn. John 3.16 tells us about Jesus. I remember my grandmother always used to tell me that godliness was next to cleanliness. I think that was because I was a dirty little grandson. We used to play in the dirt all the time. My children, I think, probably learned a verse from this chapter. is one of the first things that they ever heard me constantly say to them was from the scriptures. It's in verse 22. And if I started it, they got to the stage of finishing it. Like my grandmother would say, cleanliness, and I'd say, is used to godliness. Well, I would say, to obey, and they would say, thank you. See, they've learned it really well. It was just, to obey is better than sacrifice. And this story was something that, I suppose, was something that I grew up with, and it's fascinating. I was surprised in the 8.30 service that when I asked who actually heard the story of 1 Samuel 15 that probably less than 5% said we know what it's about. So I'll ask you, who knows what 1 Samuel 15 is about? About 5%. We're doing the same thing again. So I'm going to tell you about 1 Samuel 15. We're actually going to go through it. We're going to read some of what we've read beforehand. And I tried to work out how to tell the story and figured that God probably tells it best. Duh. So we'll basically go through and read it out as we go through and I'll just throw in a few explanatory comments as we go through. Basically, as you read through this, kind of get the idea, this, this, is a, this is a story about judgment. More than anything else, it's a story about judgment. On two groups of people, one of them is the Amalekites. This was a group of people who lived in Canaan but who had treated God's people back badly back in the Exodus times. And God says, because of the way that they treated my people, I'm going to bring judgment upon them. But he has not swiftly brought that. He has been slow in bringing it. In fact, all of the nations in Canaan, if we remember, back in 
Abraham's time, God had had enough of them and he promised that as their sin was filled up that he could put up with it no more. Then he would deal with it and that's why his people were to take over the land. The time had come for them to be destroyed. God had been patient with them for hundreds of years and now he said, they're not changing. There's nothing. I'm going to bring my judgment that I promised upon them. But it's also a judgment upon Saul. I find it fascinating that God in some ways gives Saul this last opportunity in in many respects to learn of God's judgment on those who don't change, on those who are against him. And he gives Saul an opportunity to do something there and to be involved and to see what God is like and to understand God's holiness and to carry out God's commands. And Saul doesn't. And by the end of the chapter, Saul is in exactly the same state that the Amalekites are in. God has rejected him because of the way that Saul has behaved. So keep that in your back of your mind as you read. And then I'm going to throw in the applications to you up front. Normally we chuck the applications on at the end so you don't forget them. right? I'm chucking them in the beginning so that as we go through this chapter you can think about them. And there's three verbs because verbs are always easier because that's what we have to do. The first of the verbs that comes out through here is to listen. Listen to God is basically what Samuel tells Saul right at the start. He says, Saul, listen to God. And we'll read this out in a moment. He says, because he's God. He's sovereign over everything. He's in control. He's in command. He's the king of all the earth. Listen to him. That's the first verb. And there'll be other things to do with listening that come throughout the chapter. The second verb, the second application for us, is to obey. Samuel makes it very clear to Saul what you've heard, do. And just from the small bit that we've read already, Saul heard, he understood, but he didn't do. He obeyed bits and pieces of it. And the application that we get out of this chapter, what the writer is wanting us to understand is, God expects obedience. If he tells us something, if he explains the way that we're supposed to think, act, relate to people we don't have a choice that's what we do we obey and the third verb for us is to repent now there's two people who repent if you like in this chapter God repents he turns his back on the previous way he was doing something and Saul makes an attempt at repenting after his disobedience. And I think both of these are supposed to encourage us, and when we get to them I'll explain this a bit more, that we, when we fail God, when we don't obey, our response is supposed to be true repentance. It's supposed to be a turning back and saying, no, you're right God, I'm wrong. I'm going to do it your way. So they're the three verbs. Think about them as we go through. And we're just going to read through the chapter with a few explanatory comments. Whilst I say a few explanatory comments, notice that this morning's service went over time. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So 
listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them, put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. What does Samuel say to Saul? He says, Saul, I've come from God. God is the one who made you king, and not king over your people, but king over his people. Understand that your life is in his hands. And he has a message for you, so listen to it, is what he says. And he tells him that judgment is upon the Amalekites. Now Saul would have known the history of the Amalekites. And not just any judgment, he uses the word that means to be put under the ban, it means it means totally destroyed because God says, this group of people are mine. We all belong to God, but he has said, these ones I want now. Their judgment is now and everything about them is to be destroyed and I want you to do this, Saul. So Saul is supposed to understand God has spoken. My task is now to do what God wants. He has asked me to bring his judgment. That's what he wants me to do. So Saul goes out and he summoned the men and mustered them at Telaim. 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. That's a lot of people, isn't it? Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. How do you fit 210,000 people in a ravine? It's either a really big ravine or maybe we're not quite sure of the number of people but I reckon it would be hard to hide that many people in an ambush in a ravine. Some people suggest that instead of thousands it should be like military units and the word is a bit hard to translate so it could be that he had 200 military units from one group of people and ten from another and these he placed in the ravine whatever it was the idea is there's a lot of people he took enough people along to do the task Saul went to the city of Amok set an ambush in the ravine verse 6 then he said to the Kenites go away and leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them for you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. There were some other people who had been kind to Israel in the past and so Saul says, move out of the way. Where the Amalekites had been wicked to God's people, this group of people had been friendly to God's people, so he says, move. God's judgment is upon them. His judgment is upon them for the way that they have behaved. So you guys get out of the way. And they did. Very wise. Verse 7. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur near the eastern border of Egypt. He did his job. Over a wide-ranging area, he attacked them and destroyed them. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. And all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good these they were unwilling to destroy completely but everything that was despised and weak 
they totally destroyed. Saul gets there and there are an opportunity to do what God told him to do and he had a better idea. I'm not sure what he thought, whether he thought that maybe God was a little bit unreasonable here. I mean, why would you kill good stuff, right? Why would you kill all those sheep and everything, totally destroy it, not for use, but under the judgment of God? Has anyone here ever come to the conclusion that some of what God asks us to do seems unreasonable? Do you ever get that idea at times? Because I can't think of too many other reasons why we would disobey it. Obviously we think that there's a better idea. This is one of the times that I taught my children the verse in verse 22. I basically said, if I tell you to do something and you think I'm unreasonable, you can tell me that as you start to do what I've told you to do. So if I tell you to go there and do it, you should be walking there as you turn around and say, it's really unreasonable for this reason. You can't stop and argue straight away. Because I understand that no matter when everyone's told to do something, sometimes we think there's a better way of doing it. And I know that happens with us and God at times. Well, I know it happens with me and God. I think sometimes God, you know, loves that person. <laughs> you don't know the way they've treated me. I tell you what, that ain't reasonable. Reasonable is a kick in the pants. That's what reasonable is. God says, no, I want you to love them. I want you to forgive them. I want you to care for them. Would you be gracious to them? That's sin, God? How can that be sin? Look at the positive consequences of that if I do that. That can't really be sin, Lord. You say it's sin? And we think sometimes that maybe God's unreasonable. That's what Saul does. Saul sees Agag. And we don't know why he spared Agag. Maybe he wanted to take Agag down to Gilead and kill him down there because he still had to try and bolster his reputation amongst Judah. And maybe killing the foreign king in front of them would do that, but God said, no, I want you to kill him. Maybe he didn't kill the king because if you start killing kings, you never know who's next. That's not a smart thing to do. Whatever reason, he decided not to kill Agag. But then he decided not to kill the things that he thought were worthwhile. God had said it's not worthwhile. It's under the ban. It's to be totally destroyed. But he said, no, it's good. I'm happy to kill despised and rotten things, but good things? And we get this idea, God says, no, I want you to listen to me. I want you to obey me. Verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Now that word I regret is pretty much of a bit of a softening in here. It's the same word as God was sorry. God repented that he had made Saul king because Saul had turned away from God and hadn't carried out his instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night. God was sorry he made Saul king. That sentence both terrifies me and encourages me. Does that make sense to you? A little bit later on, God's going to say, I reject Saul. 
those two statements together that he was sorry he made Saul and that he rejects Saul that terrifies me and it encourages me and you get to choose which one I talk about first terror or encouragement who wants terror who wants encouragement terror is first the morning said the 837 did the other way around bad news first right why does it terrify me because it means that there comes a point when God's had enough basically God had given Saul time and time and time and time again and then there came a time when he said I'm sorry I put him as king I reject him Saul was put in the same place as the Amalekites were and to me that becomes terrifying that there might come a time in people's lives where God says enough, enough I'm sorry I kept on with them. I reject them. No more opportunities. They're under the ban. That's it. That scares me. But I find some encouragement in this and that is because obviously God as he relates to us is is not just static but he's dynamic. He relates to us. Obviously Saul had been disobedient in the past and yet God had not just wiped him off. God had allowed him the opportunity to learn and to grow and to come back in repentance. A little bit later on in this story, God is going to say, look, I've got someone better than Saul. Not better in morality, but someone who would learn who would come back, who would say and repent and come back into a right relationship with God so that even though that person did things as bad as what Saul had done in many ways, God never rejected them. God never gave up on them like he did on Saul. Why does the writer tell us this in this chapter on judgment? I think it's to encourage us. With a bit of a carrot and a bit of a stick. You do that with donkeys. You do it with kids too. And adults, much the same. The carrot is this. We fail. God in his grace continues to work with us. When we sin, we just don't get thumped on. God gives us opportunity. And we've got the story of the Amalekites. For hundreds of years, God still gave them opportunity to change. They didn't. That's the carrot that even though we in ourselves have failed and fallen, we have this opportunity to come back to God. And we look back on what Christ Jesus has done for us and we have the grace of God held out to us in Christ that we might be forgiven. But he pretty much says, there will come a time if we keep on refusing to repent, if we keep on refusing to change, there comes a time when God says, enough's enough. Now, if you come this evening, Pastor Darrell's talking from the book of Hebrews. And one of the things in the book of Hebrews is that those who are in Christ persevere to the end. There never comes a time when God says, enough, enough, if you like. And now, there's no time when they say, I've had enough. Come on and listen to uh, Darrell this evening on that, so we'll finish up there. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. Verse 12. But he was told, 
Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honour and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. It's a place where he was anointed king. He's gone down there after giving himself some honour. When Samuel reached him, that was Saul, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. I've done what I was asked to do. Finished. And Samuel said, What then is the sound of sheep in my ears? What, what's the sound of cattle that I can hear? And Saul answered, Well, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. He says, Well, yeah. Yeah, there, there are a few cows out there and there are sheep. Um, when I said we did what the Lord instructed, we, we did what the Lord meant, really. Uh, we didn't kill all the good stuff, but we've brought that and we're going to give it to the Lord now as a sacrifice. Doesn't that seem like stealing to you? God says, I want them, they're mine, I want them destroyed. And Saul comes along and listens to his own thinking of what's right, or he listens to the noises of his soldiers and he decides not to kill them but he says now that we've got them I think he's thinking on his feet to be honest he says we've brought them to sacrifice to the Lord I, I have a beautiful daughter who often used to give me presents as I was growing up as she was growing up I was growing up too she used to give them to me for my birthday and for Father's Day and for Christmas. And she would go down to my library and take out a book she knew I liked and wrap it up and give it to me as a gift because she knew I'd read it. And it was really cheap. And she could do it at the last moment. I'm not sure all of her reasons, but I always unwrapped all of those things and said, I've got this. She said, yeah, yeah. Free <laughs> library. It's a little bit like that, isn't it? I mean, I appreciated that as a dad, but I'm not sure how God appreciates that as a sacrifice. These sheep and goats he had wanted destroyed, they were his already, and Saul and the army steals them and then gives them back to him as an offering and expects God somehow to say, oh, thank you. Thank you for doing that. No, he's not interested in that. He's interested in obedience he wanted to see what Saul's heart was and Samuel has enough he says enough let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night verse 17 tell me said Saul Samuel said although you were once small in your own eyes did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel the Lord anointed you king over Israel and he sent you on a mission saying Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you've wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Yes, for those who are interested, the word pounce there isn't used very often in Scripture. It's the same word that's used pounce back a couple of chapters earlier when 
the, the, the chapter earlier when the, the, the men who were hungry pounced on the animals and ate them with the blood in it. They were greedy, they were hungry for it. And so pretty much what Samuel says here is why were you greedy for all this stuff? God made you king over Israel. Why didn't you just obey him? Why did you go with your own rationalization? Why did you listen to the men around about you? Why couldn't you just do what he said? This is evil. Verse 20. But I, I did obey the Lord, says Saul. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag their king. I think he kind of throws that one in just in case that's kind of hears about that later. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Yeah, we did do it, we, just, we didn't quite do it exactly the way. You know, we brought a few extra bits and we'll, we'll make it work, is pretty much what Saul is saying. And then Samuel says this, verse 22, But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the law? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of lambs. And then this is where he tells us what disobedience really is in the eyes of God. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of adultery. Divination was this where you went to find out a direction that you went or what was happening. And he says, rebellion against what you hear from God, the sound of God, the voice of God, when you go to other sounds to tell you the direction to go, that's rebellion. And the scriptures are very saying, saying, don't do divination. That's wicked and evil. It's total rebellion against God. And so what Samuel says to Saul is when you listen to a voice other than God's to direct your life, you're doing such wickedness that's condemned by all of God's covenant. It's satanic almost in the way that it reads. When you reject God's voice, the other voices you listen to, even your own, are in rebellion against God and you're either for God or against God. He said the arrogance that's in you that says, I'm not going to listen to God, I'm going to do it my way because you think it's the right way is the same as idolatry. He says you set yourself up as God instead of God. Or you set someone else up as God instead of God. And he said, that's idolatry. So he says, because, in verse 23, because you've rejected the word of God, what God's commands are, because you have failed to listen, because you have failed to obey, he has rejected you as king. The judgment is final. There's no coming back. God he repents of making you king you're rejected end of story verse 24 then Saul said to Samuel I have sinned repentance we think I violated the Lord's command and your instructions sounds pretty good he understands what's happened 
I, I was afraid of the men and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. Again, there's this explanation, there's this excuse that's thrown in in Saul's comments and his repentance. He's afraid of the judgment that's coming but he isn't yet at the stage where he recognises it's his disobedience completely before the Lord. He's still blaming the people around and the other voices that are going off in his ear. I'm afraid sometimes that we get like that, don't we? We know what God wants us to do but there's so many other things that are out there that are trying to pull on us to say this is what you should do and we give them some credence. We give them some value. My father's a surgeon. He's been a surgeon for well over 40 years, almost 50 years now, so he's getting old. He's an old codger. Um, and he's, he's operated on, I don't know how many thousands of people. He's seen almost everything there is to see in medicine. He's trained some of the top doctors here in Queensland and, and around Australia. He knows his stuff. He still gets patients when he's... Um, consulting who will come up and they'll tell him his symptoms and he'll examine them and he'll say well this is what I think you've got and they'll say yes well that's good but I was on Google last night and it says I've got this and my dad kind of just looks at them and says well why don't you let Google operate on you but they somehow think that all that experience and all that everything else all the knowledge and that the hand on hand is matched by them looking at Google and yet sometimes that's what we kind of do with God and God says I have none of that I'm God he says and you will obey me but Samuel said to verse 26 I will not go back with you you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. You've reached this point, the same point that the Amalekites reached, where you failed to learn. You failed to learn to obey and now God has rejected you. Verse 27, And Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbours, to one better than you. Better in the sense of someone whose heart was after God, who acknowledged God, still failed, still made mistakes, still sinned, but whose heart was constantly there saying, yes, God has a right to judge me and I have an obligation to obey. And then in verse 29, He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind. For he is not a human being that he should change his mind. It seems to be one of the paradoxes here. God has changed his mind about Saul, but he doesn't change his mind, is what Samuel says. And I think in some ways that's the difference here between the terrifying bit and the bit that gives me comfort. God keeps on with us, working with us, that we might come to him. He, he, he has this relationship with us. And that's encouraging. 
But there does come a time when he says, we're not going to operate there anymore. We're operating here. God, in one sense, hasn't changed at all. He's still against sin. But what he's done is he's given up. He's given up on us changing. He's given us up on us learning from everything that's happened beforehand. And he says, like he does in the book of Romans, he just hands them over to their sin. Saul replied, I've sinned. But please, honour me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with Saul and Saul worshipped the Lord. I'm not sure how true that worship is. It seems from what we find of Saul's life that it wasn't very. His main purpose for having Samuel come back is that he will be elevated in that position of being king before the people. But why did Samuel go back? get the impression from the next verse, verse 32, that Samuel went back to finish dealing with that which Saul hadn't. Then Samuel said, Bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. Agag came to him in chains. And Agag thought, Surely the bitterness of death is past. Saul's not here, this is some other dude. Maybe I'm alright. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. Samuel finished what God, what Saul was supposed to do and completed what God had, the judgment of God on Agag. Why did he go back and do that in front of Saul? I think he went back and did it in front of Saul to make clear the point to Saul, God's rejection of you is final. God has rejected you and he's not going to change his mind. You can spare Agag, but God's not going to spare you. Because God will carry out his judgment. Then Saul left Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeah. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul, though. Though Samuel mourned for him, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel terrible chapter of judgment for those who are interested just because I've got a little bit of time not really but anyways we'll push it through just for those who are interested in 1 Samuel chapter 30 Saul dies I just found this interesting I don't know if it ties in but I found it interesting in the few chapters between when we meet David fairly soon and when um, Saul dies there's a number of battles in there and often in there, Saul is in this battle and Dave rocks along and either saves the day or helps join in the battle to do all of that sort of stuff. In this final battle where Saul dies, David doesn't rock up. Does anyone remember where David is? Those who've read... He's not fighting the Philistines. He was amongst the Philistines, but he had left the Philistines. He wasn't going to come down to the battle, but he didn't. Something had happened, and Dave was somewhere else. Just for your interest, Dave was fighting Amalekites. Saul hadn't killed them all. And they had gone up and they would built up their numbers. And they had come and taken some of David's servants off. So the Amalekites, 
were up again and David went off to destroy the Amalekites and to fight against them. So David wasn't around with Saul at the end because he was off and again, one sense, completing the job that Saul was supposed to do. I find that interesting that it's all there. The fact that God, in many ways, constantly brings into play time and time and time again opportunities for us to learn that we might turn to him and obey him. And the more we reject him, the more we go against, the deeper and deeper and deeper into trouble we get until eventually God says enough is enough. And Saul, anointed king of Israel at the beginning of the chapter, reminded of that at the end of the chapter is rejected by God. Why? He didn't listen to what God had to say. He didn't obey what God had said. And he didn't repent when it was pointed out to him. Let me encourage you. You know what God wants. He wants you to love your neighbour as yourself. He wants you to love God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind. He wants you to tell the truth. He wants not to cheat on your husband or wife. He wants your kids to obey your parents. He wants your parents to love your kids. He wants you to look after the poor. He doesn't want you to covet. He doesn't want you to steal. He doesn't want you to kill anyone, hate anyone. That's what he wants. You know that. And if you just want to stick with those basics, that'll do to start with. Right? You know you've heard his voice. Read the scriptures. And there's lots of other things that he desires of us as his people to do. Obey. That's all he asks. Not 60%, not 70%, not when it suits all the time. Day in, day out, night out, night in. Obey. That's all. Straightforward. Why? Because every time we disobey, we're basically saying we know better. Every time we disobey, we're saying there's someone else's voice that's going to pay more attention than yours. And don't think God doesn't hear. Just in the same way those cows and, and sheep were easily audible to Samuel. God hears the results of us and he knows it. You can't hide it from him. And when it's pointed out to you, either through the Holy Spirit working in your heart life or other people or you read it in scripture, be like David. Just come back and say, I'm a sinner. I've sinned, I've done wrong and I'm sorry. God promises and he keeps working with us and working with us and slowly bringing us to be like Christ. Don't get into the habit of constantly not listening to his voice and turning your back and rejecting. You can only do that so long. And God says, enough's enough. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you might help us as your children to listen to what you have to say. We live in a world which is in many ways confusing. There's so many voices out there, so many noises out there, so much competition for our attention. And so much of it sounds reasonable. If we behave like this, and even though it's not exactly what you say, we can see benefit. Help us to to allow your voice still and quiet 
to overpower the voices, even our own, that try and seek us to do something different. And Father, I pray that you might strengthen us by your Spirit in our lives to be obedient. That when we know what you want, that we'll, we'll do it. We won't make excuses, we won't blame other people. We'll just say, that's what we're going to do because that's what our God wants. Help us understand the seriousness of disobedience. That disobeying you is worshipping something other than you. Disobeying you is idolatry and disobeying you brings us under your judgment. Father, I thank you that you constantly work in our lives to bring us back to yourself. Thank you that we have been able to celebrate Christ's blood and his body broken. That we know that we have forgiveness of sin. Father, give us the strength to keep coming back to you and asking for your forgiveness. And Father, if there's anyone here who is at the stage of just constantly saying no to you, that you might challenge them to come to you in repentance before it's too late. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.